Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Matt Alt, author of Pure Japan, co-founder of Alt Japan, and longtime resident of Japan, Japan. Believe it or not, Japan by River Cruise holds the honor of being Matt's first ever podcast experience, a thoroughly addictive high that he's been chasing ever since. Matt, thanks for coming back for another ride on the dragon boat. Exactly. Chasing it. I hope I don't get seasick. On this week's show, the world seems to have turned its attention to the fact that Japan might actually go through with the Olympics. They won't. Which has generated a whole slew of high-profile international media pieces on the subject. Matt's going to walk us through the article he wrote for The New Yorker, and Ollie and I are going to interject with jokes that we wrote for, for tweets. Plus, Ollie's got your weekly River Cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, Bobby, this week's recommendation is the Kinugawa line Kudari River Cruise, which is running a trial with Docomo to significantly increase the speed of the onboard internet connectivity. While other cruise liners are using satellite internet or 5G technology, these guys are innovating on speed their own way. And it works! I tried it! You can now go from login page to filling out your details, to setting a password, to confirming your email address, setting your security question. They went with a standard choice of maiden name uh, of mother, identity of first lover, or pick another. Two, scrolling through the terms of and no terrorism checkbox in less than six minutes. Thanks, Ali. It's nice to see you continuing the trend of getting your River Cruise scoops directly from Rochelle Cop's Twitter feed. Yes! Plus, rainy season has come to Japan earlier this year, which has River Cruise aficionados jumping for joy. We'll talk about the thrill of getting to ride your favorite Japanese River Cruises at a slightly higher water level. You know, just the kind of high adrenaline podcasting that got Matt hopelessly hooked in the first place. But first, Soap Talk. Uh, first off, apologies to Brian. We forgot to mention that you were in attendance for last week's recording. Sorry about that. Okay. Ollie, uh, last time you were talking about podcasting from your mom's house. Now I understand you're on your mom's laptop. Uh, yes, it doesn't rain, but it pours. My laptop broke again. Do you remember about this time last year, my MacBook just decided to stop accepting charge? Right? Yeah, you just yeah. plug it in and then nothing. Uh, well, exactly the same things happen again, and it's really depressing that you have this battery timer that just ticks down minute by minute, uh, which is, you know, that feeling of like when your house is burning. Well, maybe you don't know that feeling, nope. but <laughs> <laughs> can't say as I thought. do. <laughs> that thought of when your house is burning, what items do you retrieve? It's the same when you've got a laptop that's inevitably about to die, and you know, once you take it to Apple, these geniuses, their first bot of call is wipe everything. So I had like ten minutes to retrieve the files which hadn't been backed up. Um, and uh, it, I'm sorry to say, mainly podcast stuff. So uh, <laughs> that's you know it's sad, isn't it? So anyway, I need to um, I need to thank my mum for letting me use her laptop. My mum bought a brand new laptop two days ago, and yesterday I said, "Mum, you're not going to believe this, but I now want that laptop uh, temporarily." Uh, and so I had the uh, the pleasure of unboxing, etc. So um, I mean, what it means for my mum is the quality of her nursing home is increasing with every week that I live with her. I'm very <laughs> grateful. Just make sure to delete your browser history. Before you give it back uh, to her, yeah. My browser history is research for this podcast. She'll she'll go. Is this how is this how long you spend on this thing? <laughs> You're so wholesome. Should, should, that is so rather, wholesome. Should, I'm touched. Should rather I watch porn. At uh, at least you do research. I understand. I got the name of Matt's book wrong. You did. Oh yeah. You did. But I, I forgive you. I <laughs> forgive you. And it's actually pure yeah. invention. It's pure invention. How Japan made the modern world available. Oh. bookstores everywhere. Oh, then I didn't get it wrong, because if you looked at my script, it says um, pure ellipsis Japan ellipsis. Yeah, that's about right, with some little components <laughs> missing. 
<laughs> Does that mean that your introduction joke now doesn't work? Because the whole thing was everything. Well, that, was I couldn't. I didn't want to interrupt. I actually thought that was a really great joke. You're that was funny. It made me laugh inside. Yeah. Well, could, we could do like pure Japan. So like, is there other things that Matt's pure about, and we can. I'm. Find I, hey, I'm pure as the driven snow. Uh, Try me. Um. Don't actually. I'll, no. I. I prefer to take an on-air correction than have to uh, scrap a joke. That's how. That's how much I <laughs> care true. about. My, it doesn't my matter if it's right, jokes. just as long as it's funny. <laughs> right. Once I got it out there. Um. Speaking of of uh, things that are funny and out there, um, I noticed that you also have been paying attention to Kono Taro or Taro Kono's uh, Twitter. Careful. He's supposed to be careful. <laughs> he's supposed to be in charge of the vaccine rollout, and he's spending a lot of time on kind of frivolous stuff on Twitter. Well, you know, there's two schools of thought on this. You know, there's the school of thought that you know humor gets us through a storm, kind of thing, and then there's the normal people who get really upset when people are posting pictures of om rice in the middle of a fatal pandemic. Um, yep. you know, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, I'm not like a, a a a his his sworn critic or anything like that. But you know, given the slow rate of vaccinations and things, and the, all of the snafus that have happened, you'd think that you know, internet jokes and memes would be a little bit further down the list, but uh, so not for us. <laughs> I, I, I spent four weeks re responding to every single one of his tweets with the Alan Partridge <laughs> shrug reaction emoji before Bobby told me to stop. <laughs> Did, did you get banned? Did you get blocked by him yet? He's a he's a prodigious blocker. We got flagged for harassment by him once and we got locked wow. down on Twitter for a day. Oh, uh, wow. We suspect it was him. It was probably wow. him. But no, uh, that's the thing that's so concerning about it is because he it's kind of ridiculous to see these middle-aged and older men in government positions behaving on Twitter like like teenagers or like Instagram influencers where literally uh, omuraisu is a Japanese uh, egg and rice dish. It's egg wrapped around, uh, you know, chicken flavored, chicken ketchup flavored rice. And then they'll like write little characters on it with ketchup. And so he posted true? this video. Chicken flavored rice. Uh, it's called chicken rice. It's a. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's got, got it's got that dashi in there or something, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you know, I, make I, it, I put like chicken consume moto. At least he knows how to use the internet. Do you remember the last internet minister of a few years ago who had to have yeah. his staff print things out for him because he didn't, didn't know, know what his computer? USB drive was? Exactly. So this is actually an improvement in a lot of ways. Ah, I wish there was a happy medium because he literally he tweeted a picture of somebody writing his name on Omuraisa and the caption that he added to it was just, oh, <laughs> he was yeah he was so shocked to see his name in ketchup i mean wouldn't wouldn't we all be i i wish he was a little less enamored of uh the you know his his own image yeah <laughs> his own name but yeah I, I don't think it's fair to say that he's completely ignoring the problem i don't think he is at all actually but uh i you know i just wish there was a a little bit i agree uh like, move that slider he, he, a it's not bit. that he's ignoring the problem he's aware that the, he's aware there's a problem he keeps <laughs> talking about the problem he's just not doing anything about yeah. it yeah well didn't he double down didn't i thought I think I saw something tweeted off on his feed a little bit later that was like him in a full body sized omuraisu costume. Well, I guess it was a nice change from like he's often posting images of like Japanese fighter jets scrambling over deserted islands and stuff. It's, you know, so it's he's he's obviously got the kind of the heart of a 13 year old. Um is he Japan's Trump? No, he is definitely. You know, for all of his faults, I think you could that's that's a low blow, man. I uh <laughs> No, well, I, I, mean, I don't think I don't think he's like, I don't think he's Japan's Trump. Japan's Trump would have been uh, Ishihara, Ishihara, the uh, old governor of Tokyo. Of Tokyo, yeah. 
He was like a Tokyo-sized Trump. What do you think it feels like to have that level of fame that you can tweet a picture of your lunch and it gets retweeted? That's the bar, isn't it? It's when you it's when you tweet something like food with nothing and yet somehow your fans are compelled to retweet it. Like, Bobby's not there yet, is he, in terms no, of his fame? No, but, but you don't have to be super famous. Like, Derek Westman, who's been a guest on the show, is there. He'll tweet his lunch and it'll get like 600 likes. <laughs> How well, you know, he might have he famous. might have followers who are just really, really into lunch, you know, yeah, yeah. like as a concept. I think it's how much they like you as a person. And I think um, we can see a real clear sliding scale uh, <laughs> with, with Derek and me and Ollie. We should compete. Let's all post our lunch tomorrow and see who's the more important and uh, beloved human being. Well, actually, good, because I think if there are any British listeners, and I know there are, 7%, uh, they will be pleased to know that Greg's, this is something that changed while I was away, Greg's sells their frozen sausage rolls in Iceland, frozen, and I can confirm they are identical. So now you don't have the indignity of going and waiting in a Greg's to buy sausage rolls at 70p each. You can buy eight for £3.50, frozen, and put them in, put them in the oven. So this isn't just a podcast on Japanese river cruises. It's also good pastry consumer advice for the British. So so you, I'm assuming your lunch tomorrow that you're going to post is going to be these Greg's sausage rolls. But to be a properly controlled experiment, we all need to tweet the same picture. Yeah, can you mail those to us so that we can... So we'll, <laughs> so we'll all... Shall I, shall, I send, shall I take three different pictures of a sausage roll? Yeah, and we all and we have all to post it. it with the caption, oh! Exactly. Yeah. yeah, can you put ketchup? Can you spell Konotaro's name on in ketchup on it? No, that's cheating. We can't do anything else. We can't embellish. We can't make it content. It just has to be sausage rolls. <laughs> right, I'm, gl I'm glad that's covered. Let's take a look at the news. Bobby Judo, what's in the news this week? Well, we saw a whole slew of uh, pieces about the Olympics in the international media. And frankly, uh, Ali and I are just really tired of talking about the Olympics on this podcast. So, Matt, you do it. Sounds great. So, did you hear the Olympics are happening or maybe not in the next uh, couple of months? We heard, heard something like that. <laughs> Olympics is one of these words that now no longer sounds like a word. You know, Olympics. It just it's it's no longer a thing, is it? It's just just been said enough that it's disappeared. There was a huge, huge, huge flurry of coverage over the last week or so, and I yeah. think it was kicked off. Uh, certainly, my writing about it was kicked off when the publisher Takarajima Shah took out this really provocative ad in Japanese newspapers uh, earlier last week that yeah. was. This image of kids in World War II being drilled with with like bamboo spears mm. uh, to defend the motherland in a, in a desperate and futile attempt to defend the motherland. And on top of that had been superimposed a graphic of the coronavirus and this really impassioned tagline like no vaccines, no medicine, politics is going to kill us at this yeah. rate. And we we mentioned this just briefly last week on the show, but we didn't actually get into too much of uh, what it was. Our our guest last week, yeah. Chelsea Sheeter, uh, is a historian, and she had kind of an interesting take on how all of her Twitter kind of blew up with everybody analyzing it historically, and they weren't really bamboo spears; they were naginata. And yeah, that's the whole. This kanji like, was selected know, from this, and where did this font come from? I didn't want to be like that. So, like the big criticism of it was that yes, like the guy, the the not the guy, excuse me, the the tagline says, "Do you expect us to fight with bamboo spears?" Taki mm. takiyaki, which is literally what it says. But you know, the photograph does not exactly show bamboo spears; it shows naginata, which are. 
Japanese like you know martial arts spears. However, that being said, uh, in Japan, you know takeyari or bamboo spears is almost like an idiom for the the kind of insanity of the late war era where everybody knew there was no winning this war and yet you're still throwing actual children into combat armed with nothing yeah. more than basically sticks. So that was what they were called. I, I believe me, I'm sure Takarajimasha knew in this photograph that these weren't yeah. actual bamboo spears. By the way, Matt, the, uh, the English equivalent of that is uh, sending a child with a knife to a gunfight. Yes. Uh, except these weren't even knives. <laughs> they were they were bamboo spears, although actually they're not. Now we're now we're confusing ourselves. But that was, you know, it was extremely provocative and Takarajima Shah is sort of noted for running ads like that. Um you might or probably don't remember uh that in 20, 2011, right after the uh the great Tohoku disaster and the and the nuclear meltdowns and when that was finally kind of starting to get brought under a modicum of control, they took out similar two-page spreads in newspapers of General Douglas MacArthur descending from the plane to begin occupying Japan, saying, hey, oh. you know, we can reinvent ourselves. And that was equally provocative in a sort of different way. So they have a kind of history of running like ads at that at key moments like that. I don't remember that one. I do remember one I thought was maybe last year uh, where they called for the country to come together and... and uh... Yes. And follow the Corona prevention guidelines. Yes, there was one. I, I don't know if it was last year or earlier this where they had another World War II photograph of uh, kids cleaning up their classroom and uh, saying, you know, we can, you know, we have a history of pulling together. We know following the rules will bring us through this. And it's interesting because it shows that Takarajima Shah, the, the publisher who, who took these out, is not just kind of like a mindless critic of the administration. You know, their, their, their last ad was all saying, hey, you know, let's join forces. And I think that the fact that this ad came out last week and attracted such attention, not only in Japan, and a, but abroad, shows just how sick and tired locals are of this debate over the Olympics. Like it's, it's pretty straightforward. Now a majority of Japanese have been shown in polls again and again, that they do not want the Olympics going on. And, you know, again and again, the leaders come out and say, Hey, it's going to be safe. Trust us. Or the IOC comes out and says, Hey, well, you know, 75% of the athletes are vaccinated or some foreign news outlet, you know, makes some wacky comment like, well, it's actually going to be the safest place in Japan, the Olympic village. And none of these proponents, <laughs> of the Olympics being held here mentioned the fact that we have not been vaccinated in Japan and there's going to be thousands of people there from Japan who have done, yeah. you know, the, the, the pandemic has been raging here without the Olympics. So I don't understand how adding the Olympics is suddenly going to make it safer. Well, that does make sense. If the Olympic village is going to be the safest part in Japan, what we should do is make all of Japan the Olympic village. <laughs> we should all move in there. Exactly. <laughs> I um and, you know and there's there's no there's really the, the the government has been really upfront about saying there's not going to be any prioritizing of anybody there's not going to be anybody jumping the line which is why it was the IOC actually who uh, and and Pfizer who came up with the idea of vaccinating the athletes first I read they might give an exception for the pole vaulters to jump the line <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the messaging that that kind of the government and the IOC is coming out with do you 
What's the focus? Is the focus on whether or not things are going to be safe for the athletes or things are going to be safe for the country? Well, that's just the problem. It's it's that the you know the government has said it's committed to holding a, a safe games. You know, the IOC has said that as well, and you know I, I believe it. I, I believe that the government and the IOC are committed to holding a safe games. I don't think anybody wants to cause more problems here. The issue is is that in these all of these statements, what is left unanswered is the fate of the many thousands of volunteers from Japan, uh, presumably the majority of whom are under 65 and thus have not been vaccinated yet because the mm -hmm. vaccinations are only just really kicked off a, a week or so ago for, for 65 and up. That would be really, really interesting, though, if they, they made a requirement that everybody who wants to volunteer at the Olympics has to be over 65. Or be in because the Because it would make the athlete, athletes look so much better by comparison. Well, you know, Japan is is what's known as a hyper-aging society. You know, it, it's 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 at kind of at the forefront of demographics for the world that way. You know, adult diapers have been outselling baby diapers mm -hmm. here for close to a decade, and, and not just for people who enjoy them. Uh, so <laughs> So it's it's um it's actually you know probably possible to to only have over 65s working there but it's just nobody seems to be discussing the fact that uh the real issue is not the athletes who are presumably going to be isolated it's it's all of these other people who are going to be participating in the event well that is some presumption because i think all bets are off when athletes go to japan that they're obviously not just going to stay in the olympic village why why would well, they they're being asked to sign a pledge Oh, excuse me. I forgot about that. Yeah, they're definitely going to do that. Nobody's ever violated a written pledge before. Well, this is uh. something that we had to address in our Twitter feed as well. But um, nobody, when they talk about people potentially violating the pledge, they don't bring up the clause in the pledge that says, in the event that you decide to break the pledge, you promise, and pinky swear, not to get coronavirus. Well, that's all right then. <laughs> no, just stop breathing. I mean, it's, it's pretty yeah. simple. You know, if you just hold your breath the entire time you're outside of the Olympic Village and taking public transport, transport you're probably fine. <laughs> the, the concern seems to be that no matter how many times politicians in the IOC says, we are committed to holding these games safely, everyone's thinking, yeah, you might be, but that's like saying, I'm, I'm committed to flying this plane safely where you've only got one wing left. Like, it is basically impossible. Well, compounding right? the whole issue is that we're literally in a state of emergency in Tokyo. The government mm -hmm. is telling citizens not to go out. They're telling citizens to, you know, restrict uh, their activities and to, you know, work from home wherever possible. Uh, cases are on the decline right now, which is a very good thing. But in certain cities, they're really spiking like Osaka and Sapporo. And, you know, you would think, oh, well, those are different cities. What does that have to do with Tokyo? Well, you know, people are still traveling around and such. Yeah. And there's no yeah. guarantee that just because cases are trending down now that they won't be trending up. It just so it's for a lot of citizens. It just seems really ill-advised to hold a major international athletic competition in the middle of this particular situation. And the government, uh, while everybody does believe, does not want the situation to get worse, has not done a huge, uh, a hugely, you know, great job of reassuring the population. That's really what it comes down to. Well, I mean, there's already been a really good kind of allegory for how things might go with the torch relay, because you had you have the IOC and, and the government saying we're committed to doing a safe version of the Olympics. But how that actually is going to play out is very well represented by what happened at one of the torch relays, yes. where, as you mentioned in your New Yorker article, the people who were holding the signs that said social distance created a cluster for coronavirus. Yeah. So they've been holding they've been holding a variety of kind of test events over the last uh, couple months or so. And the IOC and the government has trumpeted the fact that nobody uh, tested positive within those kind of closed 
uh, test athletic events. But what mm. you know, the government has not mentioned whenever they've trumpeted that, and the IOC has not mentioned, is that in Kagoshima, uh, in Kyushu, uh, at that leg of the uh, of the Olympic torch relay, which was not a, a a mock event, it was actually an Olympic event of running the torch. In Kagoshima, right. six officials affiliated with the uh, Olympics came down with COVID-19 from the spectators, it seems. Uh, and like you just said, they were apparently holding up signs that said, everybody, please social distance, remember social distancing, and they caught it. So, yeah. you know, when we talk, we, this, this focus on the athletes from the higher ups is, is, is kind of not really reassuring anybody because everybody is worried about the people on the ground. The, the participants and spectators. Yeah, we needed to give them bigger signs. Yeah, real big signs. <laughs> you know, like so big that two people can't be in the same stadium at the same time, I guess. I think kind of a big turning point recently has been as it gets closer and closer, there are all of these ways in which the Japanese public really starts to see where the government's priorities are. And like, as, as you mentioned in your article, the money is not necessarily the biggest issue. It's things like, you know, Japan's vaccines being put into the arms of athletes or things like uh, Japan's medical infrastructure being overwhelmed and the Olympics asking for medical volunteers. Yeah, they say what they need like a thousand doctors and nurses on call and they need beds open that are specifically uh, being held for the athletes. And it's really just yep. not a good look. I think you can say, and that's why people are so upset about it. And yet, did I see somewhere that I think they had something like 200 some requested spots for sports doctors and they got more than 300 applications? That's interesting. So there are people out there who who still do want it to go forward. Oh, there definitely. Are people who are still willing to support it. Definitely, definitely. You know, and that's the thing. I, you can't look at this as some kind of monolithic, every Japanese person is against this. There's a majority of Japanese. No, who just in, 83% of them. Well, in polls, you know, and that's the other question. Like, how are you conducting those polls? So that's always the question with these surveys. Um, Ali, don't you want to say something about how they're vaulting with them? Uh, no, I think I've done enough uh, poll <laughs> jokes. Although there might be a joke about uh, the Polish. Because I know that uh, there was some debate in Poland about whether the athletes should be vaccinated before they get sent to the Olympics, because that uh, would prioritize them over people that need it more. Ali, there there are lots of jokes about well, the Polish, and I won't let you do any of them on this show. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, it's it's it, the, the thing that the bottom line, though, is that just there's a lot of people have a lot of trepidation about this. There's a lot of people mm. who are really nervous about this. I'm nervous about this. You know, the, the yeah. prospect of... of holding this in the middle of a, uh, uh, you know, in the middle of a, an emergency like this. And again, I just, the, the real issue is not whether this is guaranteed to blow things up. It's whether, you know, it's ad advisable to do it. And that's the discussion I think that has not been had. And that's probably why it's a bad idea to think about this through the terms of how many people are for, how many people are against, because this is an issue of, the extent to which you think the Olympics is a very important cultural event that is such an important marker in the global calendar that it has to go ahead, come what may, versus it's a vanity project, versus the you know the other side, which is the, the number of kind of acceptable deaths which are inevitably going to happen from the fact that people are moving around a pandemic. And these are the kind of decisions which should be probably thought about through policymakers rather than how much people want something to happen. And it seems to me that the only way the games are going to stop, and this is something which was said by Rochelle Kopp uh, when she talked about this uh, a few episodes back, is something exceptional has to happen. There seems to be so much inertia that unless something absolutely wild happens, 
it's going to go ahead, but it's going to go ahead in name only, right? Like, it's just going to be cut to pieces. And Matt, you mentioned in your article that the last time Japan had to forego the hosting of the events was World War II, 1940, where Japan went to war. Is the answer to our problems another world war? God, I hope not. You know, I think with the what I think the issue going on here is, is that the contract with between the IOC and Japan is is pretty straightforward. It, it only gives the IOC the option to cancel the Olympics. And right. when the IOC cancels the Olympics, it, it triggers this cascade of insurance claims and things that allow for some of the expenses to be recovered. And I've seen some reporting that has suggested that if that does happen, it's going to be one of the biggest insurance payouts in the history of insurance. And so there's a lot of parties who are really eager to avoid that. And, you know, Japan's a sovereign nation, right? I, I, mean, I think. And they can easily, or not maybe not easily, but they could just say, you know what, we're not doing this. Mm. But if they do that and cancel, then they're liable for all of the money that's been spent to date. So I think what's actually happening here is less inertia and more a game of chicken. Where, you know, mm. both sides are trying to see how close, maybe something will change, maybe something will change. You know, maybe one side or the other will decide that, you know, it's just this, this isn't tenable and we can come to some kind of agreement. I suspect that's what's going on behind the scenes more than the government, say, you know, rubbing their hands together, you know, like some kind of cartoon villain saying, hey, hey, hey we're going to hold the Olympics no matter what. Because Japan did take their sweet time to to postpone the Olympics. I mean, it's easy to forget that the Olympics were supposed to happen last year. Yes, this is true. We're a year, <laughs> we're a year late. But do we think that yeah. this is all financial or, or how much is this investment in the Olympics as a symbol of status for the country or, or as um, kind of something that lends cultural power? Because in all well, the articles, you know, the, there, there have been well, all... The government certainly wants us to see it as a, as a big PR win. I, I think it would, you know, logically speaking, it would have made a lot more sense as a PR win if Japan were vaccinated first. Yeah. You know, but oh, it's not. 100%. Imagine if New Zealand was holding the Olympics. Yes. Right? They would have a 14-day quarantine period, compulsory vaccinations. It would be the most enormous flex. Right? Right. The rest of the world are still rubbing hand sanitizer on their grocery bags, hugging children through tarpaulin. And the New Zealanders <laughs> are like, yeah, we're off, off to throw a javelin for fun. Yeah, I do think it's funny to think of it in these terms because in all of these rundowns, I mean, The Guardian's done one, the BBC's done one, Reuters has one up. Um, there, there are all these rundowns that kind of refer to one of the reasons that Japan might want to go forward with this is just because of the cultural street credit lens. And uh, the BBC's rundown had one of my favorite ways to phrase this when they talked about why Japan didn't want to give it up. And it's because Beijing's got the 2022 Olympics. And they referred to the host of that one as Japan's regional rival, China. <laughs> they made it sound <laughs> like a high school football it. team. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> It's uh, no, I, you know, I understand, you know, Japan wanted to shine on the world stage. I get that. But, you know, I I don't know if you two were here when the Olympic bid was announced back in 2011. Me and Ali or by... the band? The, hmm? You mean the band or me and Ali? <laughs> yeah, you and Ali. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody wanted it back then. You know, yeah. I remember when Shinta when Ishihara uh, Shintaro, or is it Shintaro Ishihara with the new uh, naming <laughs> conventions, uh, announced that Tokyo was making a bid for the Summer Olympics. Everybody's like, why? Why on earth, like in the middle of a Tokyo summer, would you want to be holding this already presumably very sweaty event? Mm. And, uh, you know, it, there was a lot of talk back then of, of what the value to a advanced nation holding an Olympics in a major city really was? Does it really bring that much economic advantage? Does it really bring that much cachet 
to a nation? You know, was it so, like people had totally forgotten Japan and now because of the Olympics? Oh, yeah, Japan. Like, I don't really think that was the problem here. <laughs> and so there was a lot of pushback even in the beginning over this. So what changed? What changed between that bid and the 2020 bid? Well, that, that is the 2020. So what happened is they lost they lost the 2016 bid to Rio. And then one, you know, so this is like a kind of multi Olympic effort. Right. After they lost the Rio Olympics, and you'll remember the big, the big shocking denouement of the uh, Rio closing ceremony was uh, a certain prime minister popping out of a green pipe wearing a Mario outfit. Yep. That announced the Japan was getting that Japan was getting the 2020 uh, Olympics. So uh, this has been going on for a long time, and there's always been a lot of kind of on the ground resistance to it because you know Tokyo is a pretty developed a busy city. It's not like people are desperate for something to kind of, you know, entertain them uh, or, or looking for it to help rebuild an image or rebuild uh, an economy, which is what exactly what happened for Japan back in 1964. You know, that was a really transformative Olympics. You know, we got the the, the bullet train, you know, and all sorts mm. of highways and things and skyscrapers went up for that. That's not really the case anymore uh, for Japan and hosting the Olympics. I guess that kind of speaks to our different immediate influences, because in the entertainment industry, I've seen nothing but the hype ever since it was decided. And I think your focus tends to be more manga and anime, which uh, has a stronger anti-Olympic protest bent, doesn't it? Well, certainly there's a lot of mangaka over the years <laughs> who have, have portrayed the Olympics in all sorts of ways, like, you know, uh, Otomo from Akira. Uh, Akira, the anime, is, is famously its uh, uh, climax is set in a 2020 Olympics, a 2019-2020 uh, Olympic stadium, which Otomo predicted way back in the 1980s. Yeah. So, uh, and I don't think that was, I don't think Akira was set in an Olympic stadium as any sort of pushback against the IOC or anything like that. It's just a kind of very prescient uh, a sort of maneuver uh, by a very talented manga artist. But it is, it is pretty... Interesting that we're sort of seeing Akira play out in real time today, where we're all fighting this kind of mutant, mutating enemy that we can't see, and the Olympics hang in the balance. So what's the solution? A giant orbital laser platform, I believe, is how they <laughs> solved this in Akira. Um, I <laughs> right. don't think that's the solution here, but that's how they did it in the comics. Well, according to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene in the U.S., the Jews have one of those. <laughs> Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 84 of Japan by River Cruise. This show relies on the generosity of those who listen to the show to keep it going. If you're a generous person and a listener, then please consider going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Japan by River Cruise and becoming a member. You get the episode early, some extra bits that we can't fit in the episode, and you'll get a ride on our boat when we can afford it. Also, thanks to our repeat guest this week, Matt Alt, author of Invention, How Pop Culture Conquered the World. And if you combine that with what I said in the intro, you'll get the actual title. Matt, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I'm chasing the dragon by coming back here. We have to come up with another excuse to get me on the boat. We'll do it very soon. And thanks for listening. We will see you next week.